Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, Johnson, don't forget we need those reports by the other day. You got it. Oh. Oh, no. Need to go to the bathroom, but you have a lot of work to do, and it's all the way down the hall. Yep. We've all been there before. Why don't you check your lamp? Huh? Well, check your lamp. Whoa. Go ahead. Do your business. What do you mean? Use it as a toilet. Oh, now I get it. Introducing the undercover office potty, the only toilet that looks like a lamp. So you can go whenever you want, and no one has to know. Just open it up and go to town. It'll be our little secret. Thanks, undercover office potty. I did good. Hey, Johnson, you get around to those reports? Yeah, finished them a while ago. All right, well, most of us, by the way, uh, greetings, greetings. Uh, Most of us do not have such a device in our offices, and many of us have not been in our offices for a very long time, although I am am here in our office space uh, right now. and as is Cat Pastor, but a lot of people in this particular building have not been back to work in many, many, many months. And when they come back to work, they will face many new challenges and and reawakening of various anxieties. And one of those is the one that was just suggested by that Saturday Night Live sketch, which is at a certain point, you got to go, you got to go. At a certain point, you may have to, there's no other way to say it, to poop, you know, in the office bathroom. And that is not the easiest thing for everybody to do. In fact, in Nicholson Baker's uh, sort of miniature novel, The Mezzanine, there's an entire passage in which the narrator goes to the bathroom and he's he's somewhat nervous about whatever noises and sounds and smells and things like that that he will produce. But they're like guys sitting in parallel stalls next to him. And they're just like carrying on a conversation. He can't believe it that they're like talking about some attractive woman in the office while they're sitting there doing their business. But everybody has kind of a different relationship with all that. So we're going to talk about that uh, and, and particularly what uh, what it's like if you, your relationship with that whole phenomenon is complicated also by medical necessities. Uh, but just for all of us anyway, it's a challenge. Uh, and so joining us is someone who's written about this. Angela Lash- Lashbrook is a health tech and books writer. Her work has appeared in One Zero, Refinery29, The Atlantic, Vice, Vox, Virtue, Veritas, all the V1s, The Outline, and other places. She wrote a piece for Slate about why post-pandemic pooping at the office is going to be hard for a lot of people. And then to inject some actual expertise into this, some medical expertise, Neil Parrick, um, who is a gastroenterologist for Hartford HealthCare and Connecticut GI, is joining us. Uh, And uh, so we're going to try to give you some real information here about you know, something people really don't talk about all that much, but it's it's that doesn't mean it isn't uppermost in their minds at times. So um, let's start, uh, first of all, with this conversation uh, about uh, 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 about the article that you wrote, first of all. <laughs> tell us a little bit more about this. Maybe you could even tell, tell us what occasioned this article for Slate. Uh, it's a topic that I think about a lot because um, I have IBS and I know a lot of people who do have IBS and um, the idea that many of us are going to be forced back into the office um, and having to take our digestive issues with us is kind of anxiety inducing. 
And, and uh, so, um, Neil Parikh, um, maybe you could say a little bit more about IBS. Maybe people don't even entirely know what that acronym means or what, what it would mean in this context. Sure, certainly. Thanks, Colin. Uh, first of all, thank you, Angela, for sharing your story. Um, I feel as a society, we remain, we remain reluctant to discuss our bowel habits or gut issues with anyone. Uh, it's, it's funny. We go from three-year-olds who only want to talk about poop to 30-year-olds who are reticent to discuss even a subtle change in their daily bowel routine or, God forbid, be caught briefly flatulent. I feel like the stigma develops over the entire digestive process as we get older. So I, I applaud you truly uh, for helping us normalize this because many of us experience it. Um, and the conversation that you start, you know, and the audience hears goes far, not only just bringing up IBS, but other more nefarious conditions like colon cancer. So, so Colin, you asked, uh, what is IBS? So, uh, IBS stands for irritable bowel syndrome, uh, in its simplest medical definition is a condition where one experiences a fluctuation in their bowel habits, either go from diarrhea to constipation or have a little bit of both. Um, along with some abdominal discomfort. So that's a simple definition, but as Angela will, will share or anyone who's experienced the symptoms or any providers taking care of these patients, it's much more complex than that. Uh, people talk about leaky gut or spastic colon. Um, I often tell my patients who present with, you know, quote, IBS symptoms that there's multiple pathways. Um, and I don't think any of the patients follow a textbook. And it's, it's quite diverse. And I think that's what makes it difficult for, for everyone involved. And Angela, one thing that you point out, and I think this could be true for an IBS sufferer, but also just for anybody, there's a psychological aspect to this. If the thing that you're thinking about when you go into work, if, if, if either in the front or back of your mind is, I hope I don't have to poop. Uh, while I'm at work, somehow or other, that's kind of shoveling coal into the furnace of your problem. Yeah, I mean, if if I'm fixated on it, if it's it's going to make me anxious, and if I'm anxious, then then my symptoms are going to be increased. And I think that, from what I understand, um, anxiety and IBS often go together. So anything that's going to cause more anxiety, and that includes just worrying about the bathroom, is going to then potentially send me and others to the bathroom. Right. And we've we've actually done other, I, I don't know why it is we've done so many shows about related topics, except that maybe we are, uh, in fact, addressing the very problem that Dr. Parikh uh, is referring to, because we did one show about the fact that there's something about bookstores. People go into bookstores and they suddenly need to do that particular thing. And there's some kind of weird clue cue that's based apparently on smell or environment or something like that but it, it's a thing you know people people have that particular reaction so Angela you talked to a bunch of people who for probably obvious reasons prefer not to give you their full names or or at least have their full names uh, used in, in this article maybe you can mention a couple of the things that you you heard from those folks yeah so people are really concerned about privacy obviously um, if you you know if you have IBSD which means IBS with like a diarrhea um, accompaniment primary symptom it, it, people are going to be able to potentially know what you're doing in the public bathroom um, and so that gives people a lot of anxiety and you know as I've, as everyone knows most public restrooms are just not designed for privacy at all it's like you can see all the way up to people's like shins and knees which is really wild um, 
design element of public restrooms. There's also the fact that you're eating junk food in the office and that can be really hard on your digestive system, even for people who don't have IBS. Um, so that if you're not eating enough or, you know, if you're eating just like a bunch of cakes and stuff that can cause constipation. Um, so people have mentioned that. And also it's like you get bloated eating that stuff and then you're wearing office clothes and you have a tight belt or you have to wear like, you know, tights or, whatever. And then that's super uncomfortable because you're really bloated and you have like this vice around your waist. So those are just a couple of things that people have, have brought up. So Dr. Barrick, yeah, th this is an interesting point, which is that while people have been working from home, those people fortunate enough to be able to do that, they have a little bit more control over their environment, including their diet. They, you know, and whether they have IBS or anything like that, or just you know, are just sort of normal people who have good stomach days and bad stomach days. You kind of know, if you're paying any attention at all, what the good things to eat are and what the bad things are to eat. But as Angela's suggesting, being at work, sometimes you're going to surrender control over that. Yeah. I mean, Angela hit on a few critical points right there when we, whether we talk about irritable bowel or IBS or, you know, other GI conditions, a central factor is what I call gut dysbiosis, which is an imbalance of you know, healthy and unhealthy gut bacteria. And there's probably many factors that play a role to getting this imbalance or dysbiosis, but a few she mentioned right there are the brain gut axis and then food dietary changes. So when we are working from home, there are a variety of gut health benefits from working from home. You know, uh, Angela mentioned the anxiety and I often tell my patients, you know, I always bring up anxiety, but I, I preface it by saying, it's not to say this is in your head, but it's to say that a lot of your emotional state directly connects to your digestive state. The simple concept of knowing that you can use your own bathroom whenever you want to takes away a significant anxiety, which otherwise adversely affects the brain gut access, depreciates mental health and likely encourages unhealthy gut bacteria. Then there are all these other indirect dietary benefits Angela mentioned. Working from home usually means cooking at home or at least having some control of the ingredients you're putting in your food. It means less processed foods. You also usually have more time to eat. Um, some of my patients benefit from smaller, more frequent meals than having that 25 minutes to chow down everything. You know, you end up having the fastest and largest meals in 25 minute break, which when you're at work, that's usually the only window you have. Yeah, I do think, uh, I mean, it, this is kind of flinging me back, Dr. Parikh, to the days when a, a lot of us were together in this office. And another thing that happens is, like, you send out for food, right? So you send out mm -hmm. for food, and I don't know, <laughs> I used to get this portion of pad thai from wherever it was that people were going to get the get the food. And and the portion weighed enough to be a pretty serviceable doorstop or maybe even to like chalk the tires on your car. It was, you know, but most of us or many of us, let's say, don't have the common sense or the self-discipline to eat only half of that portion. So I think that's another thing that happens, right? You just, it's not like you're going to eat, you know, a, as you just said, a smaller amount you know, and, and, and maybe put the rest of it in the refrigerator or something. You just wind up eating the whole thing because you're in this weird environment that you don't control. Yeah. I mean, Colin, we're social beings uh, and moderation. I mean, for me, for example, when we get food in the office, often I'm a vegetarian, so often my choices end up being pasta or other carbs. And like you said, they come in large portions and I have that 30 minutes and 
I'm usually going to use all 30 minutes of the break and I'm going to eat that entire meal, which if I was at home, maybe I'd eat a little bit. Oh, I'm full. I'll put it in my fridge, which I can access whenever I want to, or I can rewarm it if I want to. You don't have that flexibility at work. Um, so, Angela, I think the other part of this is, you know, I mean, you, you, well, maybe we should back up and say this. One of the things that would be really good, I'm just sort of saying this to the gods who may be listening, is is that, you know, that, that employers start to understand that, yes, the workforce is coming back, but it might make sense not to have this completely latent assumption that your entire workforce needs to be on the premises five days a week for eight hours a day. That maybe one of the things we could have learned from the last this cycle that we've been through is that, well, you know, Maybe there's some days where you can stay home all day, or maybe you only need to be at work for like four hours, and then you can get all the other stuff done, you know, in the other hours uh, at home. And Angela, I'm assuming if that were to happen, you know, people would feel like they had a little bit more control over this process. They could maybe wait it out or prairie dog it out or whatever you have to do to just sort of, you know, I, I personally am very, very, uh, my preference for pooping at home I would like to do that like 95% of the time in my life. And I think most people would. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking it's like, you know, when you have IBS, it's not always predictable. So it's like, okay, you know, it's 3 PM and I just got out of a nervous anxiety inducing meeting. And now I need to go to the bathroom and like, can I go home? Like, I can't, it's hard <laughs> to ask your boss, like, Hey, I need to go home because I need to use the toilet. Like, it, it, there needs to be some level of like understanding and flexibility um, with people with various, um, you know, digestive disorders, whether it is like IBS or something more significant like Crohn's disease, which really can keep you um, at home for very long periods of time and a lot of pain. So it is very important that there is more flexibility. And what would be great, and I, I'm a little less hopeful about this, is that, you know, places start building their bathrooms a little more thoughtfully, like... I'm not a huge fan of WeWork generally, but their bathrooms for the most part are pretty good. There's music, they have the little smelly things, um, the doors go floor to ceiling. That makes a huge difference in people's comfort. Yeah, I, I do. I, I was reading an article uh, getting ready for this, making the point that, you know, really, um, uh, most of the workplace is constantly undergoing redesign. You know, I mean, we still have kind of an open office plan here, uh, a lot of open floor space, but, you know, I'm sure we'll get redesigned out of that pretty soon. Everything's always in flux. But, you know, to your point, Angela, the bathrooms really don't get that much better. There's a way in which, you know, in terms of the, our understanding about what an office bathroom is, we're, you know, we're somewhere around 1960 or so. There may, I mean, there's like more wheelchair access. There's a few things like that, you know, and, and I think because of COVID too, more of the bathrooms are, are sort of have touchless faucets and maybe touchless touchless flush, flushing and stuff like that. But it, it doesn't seem as though every the bathrooms have kept up with everything else. Yeah, and I've, I read another piece, I think it was in the Atlantic, that went into like bathroom design and architects say that, you know, you, you give the bathroom to the lowest level architect. I don't know for sure if that's true, but that is what I read in, in another piece. Um, so nobody wants it. Like there's a stigma everywhere. Even a lot of gastroenterologists like don't, you know, want to talk about this publicly. It's hard. I had a hard time finding people to talk to for this story um, because even gastros are like nervous to talk about a stigmatized topic. 
That you well, Doctor Perry, you, you said this at the beginning of the conversation. This is somehow or other. I mean, this sort of basic function, the thing that ideally all of us do every single day, uh, is this thing that we just absolutely cannot talk about. And I think also that everything that we're talking about right now. I mean, I think all three of us might have used the word stigma at some point or another. But what's the stigma? The stigma is that we make something stinky, you know. And one of our coworkers comes in and realizes we're the one who made the stinky, you know. I mean, and it's just it's sort of bizarre. I'm sure there are lots of cultures in the world where this is not the article of shame that it seems to be here uh, in our culture. Yeah, it's uh, mind-boggling. Again, my, I know I have younger kids, and I, if I can count how they say poop and fart all day, mm-hmm. um, it's nonstop. And so it, at some point, we we realize that, oh, this is somehow society makes us feel that this is not something we should talk about all the time, and we stop talking about it, which is not healthy for a variety of reasons. Right. And actually, our other producer, Jonathan McNichol, says poop and fart all day, too. So it, it's not it doesn't necessarily <laughs> cut off uh, for everybody at, at the same time. But but yeah, it does seem as though this this is an area. And I guess, you know, I, I'm so glad to hear you, Dr. Perry, talk about the kind of psychological and emotional part of this, because I, I maybe it's, I'm wrong about this, but I feel sometimes people who are in medical science sort of look at things from a point of view of medical science. I, I, I have a family member where if I'm having dinner with this person, I just know what's going to be happening to me later. You know, I just know because it's how the interaction goes. It's how it's what ratchets up over the course of time. And I could be eating anything. I could be eating Soylent Green. It doesn't make any difference what I'm eating. I'm going to have a really bad time about an hour or two later. And and as you're suggesting, I think, doctor, you know, I mean, our emotions and our guts are just they're all wired up together. It truly, and I think what makes the gut microbiome so fascinating is that we still, as a medical or scientific community, are still learning a lot about it. You know, it's a, it's a trendy buzzword, um, but I think eventually we're going to know that the emotional state or your digestive state are truly linked. You know, the brain-gut axis, which is finally taking a much more steam lately, and we're talking more about it, is very prevalent. All right. Well, I mean, not that we've exhausted this topic. Uh, but Angela, I guess sort of to, to the last thing that you were talking about too, I think we can also all agree. I, I sort of feel like, you know, if we could just, just ventilate these spaces better, I mean, I think a lot of it is sort of the, whatever shame you feel if you've done, (laughs) if you've done a poop and then like somebody else comes in before you've cleared out of there and they know that you made the smell and stuff. It just seems to me like we could just do stuff like that. Uh, I, I, people are, you know, we're not going to get rid of this, these kinds of taboos and stigmas overnight, but at least we can sort of, I don't know, clear out the evidence of them faster. Yeah. I, I think that, Ventilation is important for a number of reasons, also just because it's like healthier for your um, respiratory system. Uh, but the, the little sprays can be helpful. And I would, I mean, are businesses willing to like invest a few thousand dollars into spaces that would make their employees more comfortable at the office? Like inevitably that might pay off for the company themselves. Oh yeah. If you let the employees vote on this, you're going to get a very po- positive vote. Also, I haven't been using it lately, but there also is a product called Poopery, which you can order online. And it sort of does a kind of different thing. You spray it on the water first before you do your business. 
and then it kind of drops through this little membrane that the poopery has, has made over the water. And it actually is somewhat effective, but remembering to bring it in your, you know, your work bag, with you, <laughs> that could be a, a too big a step. Uh, well, anyway, I want to thank both of you. It was great to talk to you. Uh, I want to have my colostomy with Dr. Perik if he will do it. I, he's I'm my kind of guy, I can tell. Uh, and uh, thanks. So he's a gastroenterologist from Hartford Healthcare and Connecticut GI. Uh, and uh, Angela Lashbrook is a writer for many publications, in this case, the publication Slate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Thanks. Take care, Angela. Constipation. I've been eating fiber and avoiding cheese. I've been praying to God down on my knees. Please, when it comes out, let it come out with ease. It's causing me such frustration. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, so uh, I've got to tell you two things, uh, just because I believe <laughs> I believe in being honest with the listeners. One of them is this is next; these next two segments are going to have kind of a I don't know Groundhog Day slash Palm Springs kind of feel to them, because in fact we re- we did them on Monday, and because our you know otherwise highly reliable uh, WNPR Tandy computer system just froze and ate them and killed them, and I mean we were just mourning. Because we lost, we lost, we were recording the show and we lost it. So we're live right now. We're doing the show live. And so all the guests that you're going to hear, for the most part, except for one that we added, uh, are we, we've already done this before. We're going to try to do it really, really spontaneously. And like I've thought of more stuff. So that's good, right? That's good. And the other thing is we're about to talk about family dialect. And so before I forget about family dialect and not so much about family dialect, dialect about, but about families, uh, the significant daughter is having a birthday today. Uh, and uh, she's not my daughter. She's the daughter of my significant other, but she's the significant daughter, and we have been through a very, 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 very trying year, and an awful lot of times she has been the person throwing the the ladder over the side of the boat so I could climb up out of the, out of the shark-infested waters. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, significant daughter. 
We keep names kind of on the down low around here. And, and happy birthday. I'm hoping you're having a wonderful birthday already. And anything that I can do to make it wonderful, I would be happy to do. All right. Now, time to move on here. Yes, it is true that families have their own languages. Uh, you know, Robert Frost said home is where they have to take you in. Well, home is also where you can make up your own pronunciation of umbrella or use some kind of fractured syntax or uh, deviation from common language. And no one will call you on it because they know exactly what you're doing. So here to talk about that uh, are Catherine Himes, a computational linguist and the co-author of Thorny Games, a game studio out of Washington, D.C., and Mignon Fogarty, who is the founder of Quick and Dirty Tips Network and creator of the Grammar Girl website and podcast, where they talk about stuff like that. She's the author of Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty T- Tips for Better Writing and six other books on writing. So I promise this won't be a repeat of the conversation we had before. Not an exact repeat. But Catherine, we have come to the part of the conversation where I ask you what a computational linguist would be. Gladly to answer again. Uh, a computational linguist uh, is someone who says yes and uh, to both math and linguistics, uh, and then ends up using each of them to help computers understand and process human language. Um, All of this is to say is that I'm trying to build the future where we can chat with robots. And do improv with them, apparently. Uh, exactly. So, yes, they, and that's going to require quite a bit of flexibility on both of our sides. All right. So uh, I'm going to ask both of you about this. But, yeah, but Catherine, just sort of uh, I, I just attempted in my fumbling way to define what it is we're talking about. But the word is familect. Tell us about familect. Yeah. Um, a familect is the language that you create with the people you're closest with, your family, think your partner, your friend group. You have a bunch of in-jokes, mishearings, nicknames, maybe some weird gestures that you you share with people when you spend a lot of time together. These are all language inventions. Um, And everyone's language will change depending on the situation they find themselves in, who they are, who you're talking to, what the purpose is. But what makes these familex special is that they are personal. Uh, They are yours and they're about the jokes you told, the stories that you lived, uh, and they're not often considered parts of our identities. So, Mignon, you've been collecting these for a while and and have devoted a podcast episode to them. Um, I don't know. Give me kind of your your take on all this. It seems to me that one of the oddities or one of the paradoxes of this is that, like, you really have to think hard about this because if you've been using the word a certain way in your house for 20 years, you may not remember (laughs) anymore that it's an actual departure from the canon. Right. I mean, much to my surprise, it's become one of the most popular segments on my podcast. At the end of every show, I feature a, a family, some somebody's family dialect. They call in with a story and people love them. They love to tell me their stories. They love to hear everyone else's stories. They love to comment on each other's stories. Um, I think everyone can relate to the idea that, oh, yes, I have this word that only my family uses. But what's what's come out, too, that has been so funny is that often children don't realize it's a word that only their family uses. So at some point, they go out into the world, use their family's unique word or phrase, and nobody knows what they're talking about. And then they come home very angry and embarrassed with the, with the rest of their family to say, why did you teach me this thing that nobody knows? Right. There's that sort of awkward moment where all the people standing around the child go, Fledgy? What is, what is that? What is that? You know, or so. And I, you know, I mean, I had to think about this. We have actually a a, a family word, scoogey, uh, and scoogey refers to like something kind of icky or disgusting. It was like sort of like you know, it's a really pretty log sitting in the woods, but if you turn it over, the other side's really scoogey. 
but I didn't realize, I had to really think hard about the fact that that's not a word. I mean, it's not a word that exists any, anywhere else. I want to ask you guys for your own personal examples, because those are always the best ones. Catherine, uh, give, give us one of yours. Yeah. Um, so I am uh, originally from California, as is my mother, going back multiple generations. And uh, when I was small, she would sing me this prairie lullaby from the Midwest, inexplicably, uh, when she was trying to get me to sleep as a baby. And I would request it by asking her to sing me the boats and the whales. Now, absolutely neither of these things feature in the song. It is a prairie <laughs> lullaby, very landlocked. Uh, and uh, I don't have a lot of memories from when I was tiny, but I realized later on that this is what I was dreaming about when she was singing to me, boats and whales. And so I renamed the song. Right. And, and car horns also dreaming about. Exactly. Um, so, um, yeah, Mignon, give us, a, give us one from your own life. Yeah, my favorite one from my family is um, long ago, my husband and I had wa just watched City Slickers, and there was a scene in which um, Billy Crystal you know, d helps deliver a calf in a muddy rainstorm, and they name the calf Norman. And and um, right after that, I was riding home on my bike with a ficus tree in my backpack, and I got caught in a rainstorm. And when I got home, I pulled this muddy ficus tree out of my backpack. And just like in the movie, my husband exclaimed, Norman! So from then on, we've called ficus trees Normans. So we'll be out for a walk and say, oh, there's a Norman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's also paradoxical because it used to be the potted plants were named Arthur because of uh, Mad Magazine. There was always a potted plant named named Arthur in the room. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 think that, I think my story checks out. I could be hallucinating at this point. So, <laughs> Mignon, while I'm with you for a second here, I think another thing, and so I'll, I'll pluck another one from my life. There was a, a time where we were renting a cottage next door to this guy who, on a lake, next to the guy who had all this terrific equipment like jet skis and stuff. And my son was very little at the time. And the guy's name, I no longer know the guy's name, but it was like Mr. Harrison, Mr. Something, something like that. And, and my son called him Mr. Misterman. Uh, and then we all started calling him Mr. Misterman to the point where we didn't know his name anymore. And I now... I sort of have kept it. I like the rhythm of it or something like that. You know, I will sometimes address the dog as Mr. Misterman or, you know, just throw it out some other way. But this is also kind of the family celebrity, right, Mignon? This is the person that the family has kind of made famous and enshrined, although the person is not conventionally famous. Right. And often the person isn't aware of it. Uh, they <laughs> they do it with pets, too, animals. Um, yeah, there are different categories of familects I've discovered. And one is the famous person or animal. Um, one family um, called in and they had a cat who was very good at getting into cupboards. And so they had to get all of um, childproof locks for all their cupboards. And the cat was named Louie. So, you know, this might have been 30 or 40 years ago. But to this day, they call those Louie latches um, after their their crafty cat. <laughs> so, yeah, there are all sorts of stories. Uh, another one, uh, they had a sister named Amy, and when she would look for things, she would never look very hard. And so now when someone has lost something and can't find it, they'll say, well, did you look for it or did you give it an Amy look? <laughs> and, you know, just so many stories like that. So, um, Catherine, I've already kind of alluded to this, and uh, I think Mignon has too. Kids, well, you did too with the story about the boats and whales. Um, kids play a big role in this. Kids have their own relationship uh, with language. So often, and I was sort of polling people on social media this morning, and uh, one of my favorite ones was, uh, there's two, two from the same family. One of them is 
that uh, there's a word a sea fish, in other words, a sea fish, like a boats and whales, that kind of thing, except that that actually means facetious. Uh, and, and that also when the parents say uh, to behave, the, the child, the children will say, I'm being have. Um, but, but Catherine, kids are great inventors in langu- uh, of language, partly because of their own naivete about it. Absolutely. Uh, as kids are acquiring language, they're making mistakes, they're learning, they're trying things out. Uh, they, uh, they're, they don't know what's embarrassing yet. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, these um, mistakes or mishaps um, or little inventions, really, like they, uh, they can be sticky because it's your kid and you love that kid. And, and you know, the family can keep it like uh, a little heirloom. Um, and many people that I talked with um, had actually kind of passed down this kid's speech between generations, like their great grandmother or, uh, you know, their mother had said thank you as Fet knew. Uh, and now their kids saying it. Yeah. And so, you know, Mignon, one thing that we don't know yet is what effect I think this whole stretch of pandemic time and relative closeness and cloistering of families will have on all this. I mean, one would guess anyway that six months out from now or a year out from now or whatever the gestation period is, you're going to be hit with a lot of stuff that kind of developed over this time. But I would assume it's a little bit too early to know what that stuff is. Right. I, I, you know, when Catherine asked me, I said, I really haven't um, seen a big increase in calls with pandemic words. Although, you know, on social media and in publications, you see a lot of invented words that have arisen. So uh, thinking about why that is, you know, I think when you hear about a family act, when someone calls to tell you their story, it's usually something their family has used for years or even decades, generations. And so I think for someone to perceive of the idea that their word is part of their whole family dialect, they need to have used it for a while to understand it's it's part of our language and not just a one-off we used during this strange time. So it will be interesting to see, you know, how many how many emerge in in the next, you know, five years or ten years. Catherine, as a computational linguist, uh, when you're talking to the robots about this, I'm really starting to sound like Peter Sagal, uh, but um, but. I assume we'll think a little bit about the purpose of, of this, too. I, I, I sort of wonder, you know, Family Act obviously has a little bit of a bonding thing. We're all here. We all understand each other's, you know, strange verbal tics. Is that kind of what it does or does it do something else, too? Yeah, it's in-group speak. It, it binds you together. It makes you feel like family. Um, it's a bunch of secret handshakes that you've developed based on the stories that you've lived. Uh, and um, yeah, they find that, uh, you know, when you speak uh, a way that uh, is the way that you speak together, you feel closer and uh, you feel like uh, a group. Um, and one other use of, of this kind of language is actually to you know, help navigate uh, thorny subjects, tricky things to talk about. Um, I found a lot of examples of people who have made up euphemisms from uh, words to, for the bathroom to Nick, you know, Nick renaming uh, continual arguments that people will have. Um, <laughs> so this language serves another purpose as well. That prompts one more thought, actually, about why I'm not hearing so many familects about the pandemic. I mean, I think maybe we all hope that in two years we won't be talking about quarantinis and mask phobia. It won't be something we need to, to they won't be words we need to use in the future. You know, Mignon, I also think I was thinking about like why this feature is so pop- popular on, on your uh, podcast and in your work. And I think another reason is that departures from the canon or standard English or whatever, 
And there's something kind of enjoyable about all that too, right? I mean, you know, in an awful lot of your life, uh, in a lot of our lives, you, you have to learn to speak correctly and you know, what is what is proper usage, how, what, what are real words, what aren't real words. But this is kind of the equivalent of fantasy literature, right? It's kind of fantasy grammar where you can dream a little bit. Well, it's very playful. You know, a lot of the words are said with a a wink and a laugh and a reference to a a fond memory that everyone had together. They're just fun. Right. And, and, you know, Catherine, sort of back to that idea, too, where you use it having forgotten what it is. I mean, an example that I give is that, and this is derived from a former mayor of Hartford who fractured the English language a lot. And at times he would do things like, well, the one that I have seized upon is that he would promise to go through something with a fine tooth and a comb. And and so I like that so much that I just have substituted it for the actual correct expression. And I've now, for the most part, also forgotten that I've done that. So around the house, if I'm talking about going through a fine through something with a fine tooth and a comb, everybody understands that at some at some point in my life, I knew that was not correct. Um, but there's a way in which I, I, I like it better. I, I like it better because it's kind of stupid in, in, in an enjoyable way, which I, I think also is part of the bonding maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's your uh, it's your way of talking about your life. Uh, and uh, And that's what makes it special. Yeah, and I can't think of anyone that has called me and talked about a word that came from a negative experience or memory. They're all from you know, either cute things like their kid misspeaking or a fun experience the family had together or an interesting neighbor, but nothing comes from from a bad experience. <laughs> I think the bad experience is right, right. They don't last long, you know. They don't they don't endure for two years. You're not still using the word the same way because somebody cried the first time it got used wrong or something. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, producer Betsy Kaplan has uh, confirmed that Arthur the Potted Plant was in fact a, a feature of of Mad Magazine. Uh, so nice. I feel a little bit better. Very good. One of the things I'm not hallucinating about. Uh, well, this is all a lot of fun. I, I would steer people towards the, the uh, pieces that originated our interest in, in it. That would be Why We Speak More Weirdly at Home by Catherine Himes in The Atlantic and Mignon Fogarty's Grammar Girl podcast where there's just uh, tons of this uh, stuff. Uh, and I, we might as well mention that Alan and Helen Peterson has kind of picked it all up in her delightful Substack newsletter as well. So uh, lots to work with here. Thanks to both of you for doing this. You know, it, it is beautiful the second time around. Whoever wrote that song, <laughs> you know, the correct, correct. Thanks for uh, doing this again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and we're going to do another thing for a second time. This way down. No, it's getting late. I can tell from the planes of your face that you're from out of state. And the willows All right, so uh, we are back. Uh, I am going to thank, as I did the first time we did this did this show. Uh, if you're just uh, tuning in, we're having to do the show a, a show that we did. Before, we're doing it again because of computer problems. So Kat Pastor is still the technical producer of this show, and Betsy Kaplan is still the senior producer of the show and the producer of this particular episode of said show. So thank you again to both of them. So one of the things about the multiverse, I just, this just occurred to me, but we did a whole show on, on multiverses or the multiverse or something. And, and part of the... Um, 
sort of the more kind of pop cult um, suspicions about the multiverse is that one thing gets changed and that's how you know it. you're kind of in a different cell of the multiverse. Like there, this is a whole, there's a whole thing about Berenstain Bears that they used to be Berenstain Bears but now we're in a different cell of the multiverse. It's complicated. Anyway, one of the reasons you know we're not in the same multiverse that we were in on Monday is because we're going to subtly change this episode by adding a second guess. Uh, so, Glynis McNichol is a writer and the author of No One Tells You This, a memoir. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Cut, and the New York Daily News, among other places. Emily gardner Shoe Hall is a musical theater writer, composer, and actor born in Tokyo and raised in London. She now lives in Harlem, New York City. All right. So here we go. We're going to talk about the. There's sort of we're in a kind of a moment of both clarity and confusion. I mean, the CDC has not always been by as I, as clear as it could have been about the status of masks, uh, what you can do outdoors, what you can do indoors, and, and so people have kind of had to make some, some of their own decisions. But Glynis writing my mask, my safety signal uh, in the New York Times, um, you made the point that. Ultimately, I think, you know, each of us is going to have to decide what our relationship going forward with masks, either indoors or outdoors, is going to be. And and sometimes we probably won't be left alone to make that decision. Other people, the same people who tell us we should smile more are going to tell us we should take off our masks. Yes, we all love that. Um, yeah, I think what's been really interesting, I think what has been very interesting in New York anyway was, you know, initially the CDC relaxed the guidelines a few weeks ago and then they almost removed them entirely a few days ago. And, you know, just walking around New York, I live on the Upper West Side, I'm in the park frequently, I was seeing so many people still masked up, um, which was very notable to me. And I started asking people, um, including Emily, who's here, you know, why, why they were still wearing their masks. And, for the most part, um, it was out of concern for other people that most of the people I almost, I mean, all the people I spoke with are fully vaccinated, but they felt compelled to leave their masks on to make, to reassure everyone around them that they were safe. Yeah. And I think it's also come to be in ways that I, well, I hope we can make clear, connected to value sets that go beyond the mask. I mean, I, I find myself flashing back to January 6th. And one of the more chilling images that stayed with me was while the members of Congress were locked down because of this invading mob, uh, there were one or two Democratic members of Congress who were trying to hand out masks to everybody because they're all a big bunch of you are now locked in a room, a safe room somewhere. And, and the Republican members of Congress were refusing to take the masks. And, and in fact, people got infections. They got COVID infections as a result of this. And, and so, Glynis, there's also a way in which I'm going to walk into the store without a mask would have said something very specific about you two months ago. And you're maybe not sure whether you'd be sending that signal again, even now that things are different. Yep. We might have lost. Did we lose Glennis? Hi, Glennis. Oh, oh there you go. Sorry, you just, I lost you there okay. entirely. Yeah. Sorry okay. about that. Oh, okay. No, no, no problem. But so, Glennis, I mean, there's a way in which our willingness to use a mask also kind of sends a signal about what our values are still, <laughs> I think, right? Oh, she's gone. Okay. I'm. Uh, she's typing. She's struggling. Let's see if we've got, Emily, are you there uh, on uh, on Zoom? Hi. Yes. Yeah, they're good. You're gonna you're gonna carry the ball for a little while here. So th there's the, you've had sort of an international experience. Your family's had an international experiences experience with masks. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. 
I have, yeah. Um, well, I I loved Glennis's article, and I thought it was very timely, and it was it was just a beautiful reminder that there are so many good people in the world who are trying to look out for each other, even like signaling down the street, like I'm safe and I can, I can walk past you and you don't have to fear me or my presence, you know? Um, but yeah, my, my family, you know, experienced this around the world. And, um, I did have cousins in Shanghai who went into very intense lockdown a lot earlier than, than we did in, um, in New York. And, um, and that was kind of, it really was still a surprise how quickly it came to New York, but kind of seeing how, how intense it was that they couldn't even go downstairs in their lobby, um, to the lobby of their apartment building. Um, and then they were having doctors coming in, in, um, you know, to, to, to do regular testing and temperature checking extremely early. Um, it really was an interesting lens to view what was happening over here through because I was kind of thinking, well, where's the infrastructure uh, while we were under Trump? Well, yes. And, and uh, Glennis, I think you're back, right? Yes. I, I think another point about this that occurred to me, I re- was reread your piece today, is that, you know, if you're, for example, you describe a woman on the, describe the woman on the elevator, because this will help illustrate this point. Oh, you know, the elevator in my building, um, and this has now happened a few times since I wrote the article, uh, we were limited to one person per ride, but lately people, residents have been saying, you know, you can get on with me. And every time a fully masked person joins the elevator, the first thing they say is, don't worry, I'm fully vaxxed. Um, And it really, I've had this interaction so frequently now that it feels like we are using masks to signal vaccination status as opposed to an absence of it, which is, you know, it it sort of uh, invites the question, would it have been easier if the CDC or when we get vaccinated, we had been provided with some uh, item to signify that we are vaccinated? Right. Well, it's also I mean, I think we talk about ourselves the way we used to talk about our dogs. You know, I've had all my shots uh, and, and but I think also there's a way in which I mean, there's sort of an irony here, which is the person who's refusing to get vaccinated or avoiding getting vaccinated or not getting around to getting vaccinated is also the person who doesn't want to want to wear a mask. I mean, it's there's sort of something, you know, grimly funny about the fact that the people who get vaccinated are also the people who were like double masked on the elevator, assuring you you that they're okay. Yeah, again, I think the underlying theme here is both people wanting to signal um, that they are on the side of science, um, but also signal that they are on the side of other people's well-being. You know, uh, New York especially, I think I put in the piece that the social contract runs deep here, and obviously that's true of many places, but we're such a a crowded city, and it was hit so hard uh, last spring that there just seems to be this overriding desire to ensure other people's comfort. And and also, you know, I talked to um, a, a psychologist for the piece who said, in, in many cases, our reluctance to um, let go of the mask might be a measure of, of our own experience with COVID, a measure of how, you know, how many people you might have lost, how ill you might have been, how high the risk for your family was. Um, what your community's experience uh, has been in the last year, and just sort of thinking of all of those different elements that are 
extremely difficult to communicate with strangers, you know, in conversation, but are much easier with a very simple visual signal. Right. I mean, I've got an immunosuppressed person in my family who I'm intimately taking care of, who, you know, is taking, having chemotherapy. I'm not going to stop using masks for a while just for, for that person's sake. Um, you know, I mean, Emily, there's another thing here that's kind of, it's kind of a del- delicate topic, but I, I think it's worth mentioning. Another thing that masks have done is confer various kinds of anonymity onto us. And I, I know you've talked to some people uh, in, in the Asian American community who who may want to may not want to remove their masks at a time when there's been so much uh, anti Asian American or AAPI hate and 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 attacks because they'll feel vulnerable in another way. People can see my whole face. Yeah, it's very true. It's it's incredibly sad, and of course, uh, it's not possible to really uh, hide. Um, it's not possible to once you've become visible in the wrong way to suddenly become invisible again. And I know that's a lot of people's experience that that most of their lives they were invisible. And now some people are feeling, well, this is not the way that I wanted to become visible. So uh, so I have heard this comment from a couple of people about about what masks could could be in terms of sort of trying to slip by unseen. I mean, the likelihood that that, that works, I mean, I, I think it's probably more psychological. It's kind of like the way people used to use sunglasses, you know, that they somehow they felt more anonymous wearing sunglasses. Well, like yeah. like we can't tell it's Jack Nicholson or something. But, um, but, but there's a way in which maybe the mask psychologically reassures you in a way that's not entirely realistic. Yes, that's that's right. And of course, um, those people who might who might turn into aggressors in some way um, have been focused on the AAPI community because of this pandemic. So it's actually directly linked. Like what the mask means is that I am aware of the pandemic and I, I'm currently trying to protect you. And so it's, it's kind of a, a last bastion I think we have about a minute left only, unfortunately, Glennis McNichol, but it seems like worth mentioning also. There's a way in which I think it may be kind of traumatic for some of us to give up masks. We've kind of developed these little personal checklists before we leave the house, before we get out of the car. Do I have my mask? Do I have a hand sanitizer? Do I have this? I mean, whether we need those things or not, they're part of our psyches for a while, maybe? Oh, absolutely. And listen, we're in a, I mean, it's called a novel virus for a reason, right? And all of this impatience towards the CDC and these different shifting health guidelines, I think, I mean, I'm certainly not a scientist, but is, you know, the powers that be trying to figure this out as we go along. And until we have a real secure sense, I think, of what we're supposed to do. People have as a coping mechanism and and as a survival technique over the last 14 months developed their own rituals around this. And it does seem in the last few weeks that the CDC is moving much uh, more quickly than people are able to emotionally. And I think we're seeing the the Mm. sort of the lapse or the, the distance between those two things right now. That's a great way to put it, moving faster than people are emotionally. Glynis McNichol, a uh, piece in the New York Times, my mask, my safety signal, also thanks to Emily, uh, Emily gardner Shoe Hall, who appears in that piece. Uh, thanks to everybody else. Thanks to everybody who listened, too. And keep listening this week. We may actually get to do other shows, and they may take place in other parts of the multiverse, but you'll know they're happening somehow. My posse in the Bronx wear the mask. My crew on the 
on the aisle, wear the mask. Stick up kids rolling in the Omni, wear the mask. Yeah, everybody wear the mask, but how long will it?